Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class Ross McGinnis. McGinnis was deployed to Iraq in August of 2006 and would serve with 1st Platoon Charlie Company, part of the 1st Battalion 26th Infantry Regiment, and at the time they rolled up under the 1st Infantry Division. He would be deployed to an area um, just north of Baghdad, really within Baghdad, more of a neighborhood called Adamiya, um, a predominantly Sunni area of Baghdad, but had a little bit of, of um, a little Shiite population there as well. And that's important in this story. So if we back it up a little bit, we have the invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. And in retrospect, I think we look at that and militarily say that was the easiest part of the war. Easiest part for, I mean, 10 years, maybe, where we knew who the enemy was. We generally fought a force-on-force battle and were successful. We had superior technology and tactics and logistics, whatever it might be. The the U.S. and coalition forces were successful in the toppling of Saddam's regime. But then it got messy, and that starts to play into PFC McGinnis's story here. So after the, the fall of Saddam's regime, the common refrain was that any violence taken up around the country were people that wanted to go back to the status quo, as in they were benefiting under Saddam. Now that Saddam's gone, they probably just want him back. And if you look back at the history of the Iraq war, there's really always like that next thing. If we can just get that thing taken care of, the violence will die down. And for a long time, it was, we've got to capture, capture, kill Saddam, because until we do that, everybody's going to think that he'll just come back into power and punish everybody who, you know, wasn't holding out for him or was assisting the Americans. So for a long time, that was the narrative. Then after Saddam was captured, it was nothing will happen until he's dead. Everybody will think that he'll come back into power. And there was always something, there's always something down the road that we'll get to. And then things will start to level out. Um, But in retrospect, I think what was happening was a lot of groups a lot of armed militant groups were forming in this power vacuum that Saddam really had a, a iron grip on all of Iraq that the U.S. could not replicate, even with you know 100,000 plus troops in the country. It was just a different form of control. So there's going to be a power vacuum, and the people that stepped into that, the groups that stepped into that varied all across the country. And especially in 2004, five. 2003, four, and five, you would see different factions from all sorts of different sects and for different reasons. You might have, you know, what might start out as a little bit of like a neighborhood watch group with AK 47s start to form into something closer to what would be called like the Mahdi Army, um, a big Shiite militia. Or, or you might see smaller Sunni groups decide they're going to protect their city of Fallujah. And next thing you know, Al-Qaeda elements come in internationally and start to form this Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And, and now you've got something different. So 
there were these groups popping up all over the place, which is natural. And I don't know how obvious it was in the mix, but looking back, we can see that there were starting to be armed factions all over the country. By the start of 2006, those groups would start to take aim at each other. So the U.S., for the most part, was battling every one of these groups. It was like fighting three or four different wars at any given point. Are you fighting international terrorists? Are you fighting folks that are trying to go back to the status quo and, and old you know, Saddam loyalists? Are you fighting a Shiite militia that might have backing from Iran? Like Each one is going to require different strategy and different targeting, and they're not going to necessarily communicate with each other. By 2006, things start to spin into what would be known as the, uh, as an Iraq, as I think it's called the first civil war, but a civil war in Iraq. And in February, there'd be a mosque bombing. Now, nobody would be killed, but it was a very important Shiite mosque that was bombed and destroyed. And the likely culprit were Sunni backed groups, um, likely um, either an Al Qaeda, at that point, it would have been the Al Qaeda in Iraq group. Um, likely had something to do with it. And it, the, it's hard to point to one thing that really kicked off a civil war, but if you have to, the mosque bombing in February of 2006 is not a bad place to start. From there, violence erupted across the country. And in Baghdad, it was almost most intense in, in and around Baghdad, the major population center. And one of the areas that was not immune to that was the Adamiya area um, that McGinnis was deployed to. He arrived in August of 2006. So this sectarian violence has been going on for a little while and they just get caught right in the middle of it. I mean, it's, it's, there's civilians being targeted. I mean, think of that. Think of falling in the middle of a civil war and both sides hate each other. Sometimes each side hates you. That there's just, there's death all around. There's danger all around. And, and, it's a tough spot for, it was a tough spot for the Americans. It was a tough spot for um, Iraqis, civilians, everybody. It was just, there was a lot of death, a lot of violence, a lot of suffering for a long period of time here. And it, it overlapped with McGinnis's deployment. Now, the way that they're going to move around in Baghdad when they get there are going to be in Humvees. So high mobility, multi-wheeled vehicles. And these are big and wide, and they were designed originally for use on a tank battlefield. So it really, they, they kind of replaced the Jeep. So if you look back to World War II, especially, there were Jeeps all over the place, and they were small and, and agile, could kind of bounce all over the battlefield with armored units, you know, as a way for a commander to move around and, uh, and not have to be in a tank or be in an armored vehicle at all times. Now, it was a little restrictive because you wouldn't really want to have a Jeep on the front lines, but they'd be used behind the front lines with abandon, you know? So that was kind of what the Humvee was designed to replace. Move around the battlefield quickly. It wasn't necessarily a fighting vehicle. There, we'd started to develop models and pretty early on had models that had some armor um, and, and machine gun turrets, of course, machine gun mounts, just like Jeeps did. But it wasn't really a combat vehicle per se. It was more of a combat support vehicle is kind of the way I would, I would describe that. Again, thinking that we're going to be going into conflict with a, another country with tanks and armored personnel, 
armored personnel carriers and so on, you're not going to have a, a light Humvee at the front. So even at the in, initial invasion of Iraq, we had Humvees going that you'd call light skinned and the sides of them were canvas. So that's great for training at Fort Hood or driving around with the National Guard, but it's not going to do very much on a battlefield when the door is, is made out of canvas or plastic. And that's it's not an exaggeration. There were Humvees in Iraq with that. And a lot of times they just take the door off because what good is that? Over time, we adapt. And you know, we talked about it before here where you fight the war with what you have, not what you wish you had. So we go to war in Iraq with light-skinned or uh, soft-skinned Humvees. We start to adapt over time and start to add armor. So, you know, put some bulletproof glass in, put in some um, heavier doors with with armor on the side. And and just think of your car at home because it's not drastically different. You can make modification after modification, but it's going to kind of impact your vehicle, right? So if you're going to add, say, two inches of armor all around, well, your seating area might get a little smaller, a little tighter. Um if you're going to add more protection around the turret, then everything is going to get a little heavier and a little slower and a little more cramped. At the same time, we started adding more technology into these Humvees. So you have computer screens, you have more radio mounts, you have headsets, you have all sorts of stuff. So the inside of these Humvees is getting more and more crowded as well. Then if you look at the American soldier, when the Humvee came out, we weren't really wearing a lot of armor and lots and lots of kit and stuff on our person. By the time we get to 2006 in Iraq, we are. A soldier is going to have body armor that sticks out, you know, maybe an inch or two on each side of his body and helmet. He's going to have Kevlar, um, Kevlar vest holding that body armor in with magazines sticking out even further. I mean, it's not crazy for your average soldier to, you know, grow in each direction three, four inches at least. Now, he has to tuck into this now smaller Humvee. So you have a bigger soldier, really more equipment, tucking into a smaller Humvee that's now filled with radio equipment and mounts and, and, and up armor. So it's a tight fit. The tight fitted Humvee is what they're using on patrols in December of 2006 when PFC McGinnis is serving as a machine gunner, a 50 caliber machine gunner on the top of one of the trucks. The insurgents had started using a tactic of dropping grenades to try to get them in the top of the Humvee. They were struggling. Well, it's a cat and mouse game. You're always trying to come up with, the enemy is always trying to come up with ways to defeat what you're doing. And then you're trying to come up with ways to balance that, right? So they would shoot at Humvees, we put up armor. They would um, start to shoot at the gunner, so we put up a shield for the gunner. Things like that. One of the methods they started to employ was not started to employ, but kind of all across Iraq would be trying to drop grenades into the open gunner's hatch. You eventually saw methods and equipment placed around the turret to prevent this from happening or making it harder, but pretty new tactic by 2006. So the quickest method that the soldiers were working on to mitigate this was an evacuation drill. If a grenade falls in, you yell grenade and everybody gets out of the vehicle as fast as you can. It's a tight space. And if you think about it, if the, the walls of the, the doors are armored, designed to keep a blast out, what happens if there's a blast inside? I mean, it'll kill everybody. It's contained in a tight area. That's going to be awful. So as they are leaving Cop Apache in um, Atomia, PFC McGinnis is manning his 50 caliber machine gun, and they turn a corner. 
And shortly into the patrol, a live grenade, an insurgent drops a live grenade into his vehicle. McGinnis, as the drill is called out, yells grenade to alert his teammates in the vehicle. There's four people seated in the Humvee. Yells grenade and begins to escape. Now, as the gunner, he's got the easiest escape of all. He's halfway out of the vehicle. He's almost just got to kind of lunge out the top a little bit. He's going to have a harness that's clipped in that he'll have to undo. The harness is designed to keep him from flying out of the truck if it rolls or if it there's an explosion. But he just has to unclip that thing, and he's free and clear. So there's other risks with being a gunner. One, you're exposed on the top of the truck, but there's a benefit in this situation. He's probably going to survive. But he looks down and notices two things. One, his buddies can't see the grenade. He can see that it landed right up against the back, kind of behind him, tucked in the back of the vehicle. His buddies can't see it. Not that that would have necessarily helped. But they also can't get out of the vehicle fast enough. And we've talked about this a little bit, but when a grenade is thrown, think of no more than seven seconds before it detonates. And you don't know how long that's been in the air. You don't know if the enemy pulled the pin and let it cook for a second or two before throwing it or dropping it. So when a live grenade is nearby, that is a game of any second it could go off. You have to assume that you have no time at all. You can't take your time doing anything. McGinnis looks down and sees his buddies trying to get out of the vehicle, but now these soldiers that are loaded down with 100 pounds of gear, they're they're crammed into this small Humvee that has radios and, and computers and extra ammo, they can barely get out. They also have seatbelts and the doors are locked and kind of a double lock called a combat lock. So somebody can't open it from the outside. These doors don't always work well. They're not designed to be used fast and they're not going to be able to get out in time. So McGinnis, who is a split second from being free of the Humvee and surviving, which is worth saying was the answer. That's what he was supposed to do. If he had done that, nobody would have batted an eye. That was what he was trained to do, what he was told to do. Instead, looking down and seeing that his buddies aren't going to be able to get out, he releases his harness, falls into the hatch, landing on the grenade with his back just as it detonates. Because he is covering the grenade with his body, he's killed instantly but every member in that truck would survive. There'd be minor wounds, but all of them made it home. So sometimes we have these stories where you wonder, could he have done something else? Was there another move? Was there, could he have thrown it? Could he have kicked it? Could he have yelled at everybody to get out? I think the story of Ross McGinnis is one where there, the other option was to save his life. There's no picking this up and throwing it back. There's no kicking it out of the truck. There's no, everybody's going to get out of here. His option was, well, his option was to escape out the gunner's hatch like he'd been trained to do so. But instead, he he dropped through, covered the grenade of his body, and at the age of 19, gave his life so the other soldiers in that vehicle would live. For doing so, he would be posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor and it would be 
presented to his parents um, in 2008. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.